Good morning. Everybody found a parking spot somewhere? Yeah? <laughs> Surprise! That was exciting this morning. Uh, well, it's good to see you. Uh, I want to start our time off with a confession, a personal confession of, from myself. Um, there's, a, there's a great danger in my line of work, so to speak, of being professionally about spiritual things, and that is that I can spend so much of my time studying and teaching and meeting with you and, and just having all these conversations about God, and, and that's all beautiful, and like, that is a sincere privilege that I really, really appreciate and I'm humbled by. And yet the danger in that is that I can do all of that for you and forget that I need it just as much. And so I, I want to confess to you that I struggle with that at times, that sometimes I can just functionally do all these things that seem very godly and then just personally realize, man, how, when's the last time that I just cried out to you, God, as my father? Not on behalf of someone else, but just for me to enjoy you. And so I have to constantly check my heart and see like, wh where am I at? Am I, am I authentically following Jesus myself or am I just trying to lead a bunch of people to follow Jesus? And so um, in this danger, I find that what is helpful is to, to develop what I call a rule of life. Um, I've stolen this from many other people, um, but I have different things to try to just reorient my heart and stir my affections for Christ throughout the day, the week, the year, and so forth. Um, but one of the things that I love to do is if I'm going to be downtown at the office during lunchtime, then I'll often go for a walk and just walk down to the lake. I love just seeing water, even if I can't be in it, um, but it's just, it's peaceful to me. I can pray. And, and so there was a day um, in the last couple of weeks weeks that I realized like I need, I need to just get out of here and stop working on things and just go um, pursue God um, because I'm not feeling it, so to speak. And I've told you many times over that I'm much more on the intellectual side than the experiential side and just my personality. Um, and, and yet I know that I need that just encountering with God. And so um, I, I decided to go for a walk and so go down the hill to Victory Point if you're familiar with that, kind of a, a water restoration development site. It's kind of neat. There's a tower and all this stuff and marshland. It's different stages of water trying to filter the water before it gets into the lake. And so I'm walking down there realizing like I need to just pray and stir my affections for Christ because it's one of those days where it's like I don't feel it. And I'm just trying to like force this. And, and as I'm going, I'm like, why? I'm praying, God. Like, I, I want you. Like, be near. And, and I want to I wanna feel your presence. I want to just be overwhelmed with your love and your joy. And so I'm trying to remind myself of these things and all this stuff. And, and as I'm praying and getting frustrated that my affections just don't seem to want to be stirred up this day for Christ, as I'm walking along, there's all these weeds. A snake comes slithering out and goes right by my foot. And you know what happens? I say some unholy things and like... I like, you bring a snake up to me right now, I'm fine. But I see a snake in the wild and like, listen, if you like snakes, that's on you. But I've read the Bible, I know what Satan entered and so <laughs> I want no part in that. So this snake comes by and immediately, like, like less than a second, like I go from like struggling, like frustrated, like that's my dominant emotion is I'm frustrated because I'm just not feeling you, God. Like, I want my affections to be stirred up to all of a sudden a snake can cross my path and I'm all full of emotions, like overwhelmed with emotions. And then I think, what is that? That I can come down here chasing after you, Jesus? And there's just nothing, like it feels so empty. And then this silly snake can just come across the sidewalk next to my foot and I'm like full of emotion. Like, okay, that did it, here we go. Now this showcases a reality 
about how we as humans are made and how we function that I want us to wrestle through today. Um, Adam Young, a noted therapist, he said it like this. He said, in any long-term relationship, the same arguments often seem to repeat without resolution. Am I? You're in a relationship? The same arguments seem to repeat without resolution. This is because repetitive arguments are driven by emotional undercurrents. The way we react to our spouse is far more a function of our emotions than our thoughts. The emotional brain responds in 50 milliseconds, well before the part of your brain that thinks can respond. Your thinking brain needs an additional 450 milliseconds to even become aware of what your spouse has just communicated. By that time, you've already reacted, and your spouse has already reacted to your reaction. These reactions become like a dance that you and your partner can repeat over and over and over. Shameless plug. January 28th and 29th, <laughs> we're gonna have a beloved marriage event, and I want every couple to be there um, because we're gonna learn how to better dance because this is what we do. We find ourselves in these repeating arguments, and, and so much of it is driven by these emotional undercurrents, but this points out something terrifying, that like in our brain, it's, like, it's almost working against us. That like that snake, that I can be thinking, trying to force the feeling from my thinking, and then the, the feeling part can just overwhelm the thinking part, and before I know it, like, oh, whoa, totally off course. And don't we do that in relationships? Over and over and over, how does this work? Um, I, I want to make sure it's very clear. I'm a pastor. I have a graduate degree in theology, not in psychology, uh, biology, any of that stuff. So I am very limited in my understanding of this, but this is what I can gather from this. Um, you have an upper brain, which is the cortex, and this is your thinking brain. This is where you rationally think through things. And then you have the midbrain below that, and this is your limbic system. This is the feeling brain. This is where emotion is conjured up. And that limbic system likes to overtake the thinking system in these moments. It likes to just take over, and this can be really frustrating to us, and this is what leads us into these repetitive cycles. And so you have this kind of tension in your brain, and, and that leads us to the tension that we really need to wrestle with in the text today, is if I often respond relationally, like in my relationships, if I often respond relationally in ways that are not even cognitively processed, what hope do I have of here in the context of Galatian, obeying the law of love, that I'm free, you are free, but we don't use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, and instead we live under the law of love. And we live under the law of love by keeping in step with the spirit, and so you see all these things we've been working up through the last few weeks, that your salvation is entirely by grace through faith. You cannot perform for this, you cannot earn this. You live out of the favor of God, not for the favor of God. And so this is, this is the indicative that you are saved by grace through faith. Your position in Christ, it is sealed. God himself has become your salvation. He has delivered it. It is done and it is being done and it will be done. It is all in his hands. You cannot earn this. And so when people try to distort the gospel by adding these things to where you're gonna somehow merit it, you've gotta do this, you've gotta do that, and any way that you think could earn your salvation, you've lost the gospel. And yet he says, now, out of that indicative, Indicative. They're like, this is indicatively true of you, your position in Christ. Here's some imperatives. That because of that reality, out of that, you're going to live in this way. And it looks like this. Don't, don't waste your freedom. Don't waste your freedom on the flesh. The works of the flesh? No, 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 no. 
We live for the fruit of the Spirit, and he is actually the one empowering all of this. So keep in step with the Spirit. Remember, see Christ, savor Christ. He's gotta be the greatest treasure, your greatest desire. That's going to win out. And so all of that becomes relational. It's relational with God and relational with each other, that this vertical love of God comes to us and overflows in this horizontal love for each other. And now in that context, Paul's now shifting. He's like, okay, what's our hope now? If I know that my brain is wired in such a way that the thinking part of me that's like, okay, keep in step with the spirit, you gotta like process all this, live according to the law of love and everything, but then this, this other part of me can just overwhelm me like, oh, like, am I not just at a severe disadvantage here? How do I do this? How can I faithfully obey these things? And so that's what I want us to take into the text today. Um, not because I think we should read ourselves into the text, but I think after wrestling with this, this is what the text is actually telling us. So we're in Galatians chapter five. We have only two weeks left, which breaks my heart, but I'm also excited to start our next series. Um, so Galatians chapter five, starting in the last verse of the chapter. I know it was a weird place to leave off, but hopefully today you'll understand why. Chapter five, verse 26. Galatians chapter five, verse 26. Paul is writing, he says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Hmm. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. At the heart of conceited is insecurity. And Paul's saying, hey, all those fears that are driving you, that insecurity that you feel, that pushes you to relate to others in these ways that are so unhealthy, oh, that's nonsense. You gotta put a stop to that. Let's not do that. Don't be conceited. Let's not envy and provoke each other. And the beautiful thing about this is, um, I love Dr. Timothy Keller. He says, this is, this is what he calls an honor hunger, that in our conceitedness, like our self-absorption, that we become honor hungry. Like, I just, I want more and more honor and I'm just starving for it. And so I need you to honor me, honor me, honor me. And anyone who's a threat to honoring me, like, no, I have no time for you. But, but man, if I could just conjure out some more honor, like, just feed me all the honor. Or I love, um, particularly the one that, that most has helped shape the way that I view this is John Stott, a late pastor, um, theologian. He, he says that this is actually to be viewed directionally. We're not to be conceited. We're not to provoke or envy each other. And then you think about that, that provoke one another or envy one another, those are just two parts of the same thing of being conceited. But it's directional. That the person who is provoking another one, they're coming from a position of superiority, looking down on others. If I provoke you, it's because I feel like I'm superior. And so you, as the inferior person, I can provoke you. Or... On the other end, if I envy you, that's because I come from a position of inferiority. So we're looking up at you. I want what you have because it's about me. But both of these really at their heart are us being self-absorbed. Whether it's from the direction of looking down at others or the direction of looking up at others. It's me at the center. It's me being conceited. And really, in the theme of the letter, both our works are performance-based. It's about what I can do or what you can do not who we are because of Christ. And so I would encourage you to diagnose, which are you? Because we're all gonna lean one way or the other. Provoking others or envying others. Which way do you lean? And that may change from relationship to relationship, 
But by and large, I think it's very healthy for us to see, where do I actually land on this? Where, where, where am I kind of tipping the scale? Which side am I leaning on? Because that can really help me in seeing my true heart and correcting that with the gospel. Um, so to diagnose that, I would say, consider how you respond to a challenge or a threat. When's the last time you felt threatened by something or challenged by something? And that led to some frustration or whatever it was that was just a bad experience. How did you respond to that? Would you say that was me provoking or envying? Like, where am I at? But we need to know where we are. And then Paul says, don't be there. (laughs) Let's not be conceited. Don't be self-absorbed. Don't envy, don't provoke. Don't view others upwardly or downwardly, is what he's saying. And so we continue on, now we're in chapter six, and I want you to see how the end, that last statement of chapter five actually sets the tone for everything we're gonna discuss today for the next few verses, the next 10 verses actually. So uh, verse one, Paul continues, says, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Huh, Paul shows us a different way of being that we're gonna have this leaning to either view people, view people from a place of inferiority or superiority, and he says, no, there's a different way. The way of love, actually. This is, this, is what it, this is what it looks like. You don't view them in the up or down way. You view them horizontally. And he uses that gospel language of brothers and sisters. I think, remember, we're in the family of God. You've been made a brother or sister because you have been made a son or a daughter of God. And remember, you didn't get here by your own merit. You got here by grace. That God loves you unconditionally. He does not say, hey, could you measure up for me? No, you never could measure up. That was the point of the law to show you could never measure up. And he says, I love you, you're mine. And so if we've been brought into this family because of God's grace, then now as we look at our brothers and our sisters, And how can we look down on them or up at them? Instead, he says, you're brothers and sisters. You're all under God. You look horizontally at each other. That's how you define each other. That's how you define yourself. So this this is just beautiful. It's, It's a gospel confidence. But that gospel confidence that now I don't have to earn or merit my way into any relationship, see how I stack up against anyone else. Instead, I just have this confidence that I'm here because of God's grace so I can just enjoy being here because I'm free. But he gives that confidence with a warning of humility. You have that humility. Hey, brothers and sisters, you see someone struggling, ensnared in their sin, you who are spiritual, go seek to restore them with a gentle spirit. But be careful, because you don't want to fall into this yourself. It's that, that confidence as brothers and sisters. Okay, I can step in here as your brother because I'm here by grace just like you're here by grace. But I can't come in proud and arrogant because I have to have the humility to know, hey, in stepping into this, I've got to be careful because I too could fall into this. So again, it's not looking down on you as I see you in your sin. It's not you looking down on me as you see me in my sin. It's no, it's horizontally, hey, as, as, as your brother, as your sister, I want to help you. And I want to be careful about this because I could be there just as easily as you. So it's a confidence in the gospel, but also a humility in the gospel that helps us to see things horizontally instead of that vertical kind of relationship of looking down at someone or up at someone. So this, this has to mark us, this has to define us, um, but there's an actual command, there's, like, there's a call for us to confront each other in this. We can't avoid that either. The call is to confront each other, um, but here, as we see each other in sin and we confront that, 
What's gonna mark that? How do we confront each other in that? And Paul says you do that with an aim of restoration. And so when you confront someone that you see stuck in sin, what is your aim? Are you aiming to restore them? Are you aiming to just crush them? Are you aiming to just kind of like show that you're actually superior? Hey, like I'm not like you. Like what is your aim in that? He says, you do this with the aim of restoration and you do it with a spirit of gentleness. I mean, as a, as a father of two little kids, this convicts. When I'm correcting my children, am I doing that with the aim of restoring them or just proving daddy was right and you better knock it off because you're threatening my little sovereignty here? Am I doing it with a spirit of gentleness? This is what should mark us if we are living horizontally, brothers and sisters in gospel community. It's the family of God. We come with gentleness. And the aim is always to restore, not to hurt, not to crush. And I just want to say this also applies to your marriage and my marriage. This applies to our marriage. Are you pointing out the faults and failures of your spouse? Why? Are you aiming to restore them? Are you aiming to actually build them up? Or to just make sure that you still have the strongest footing in the conflict? Are you doing this with a spirit of gentleness? And let me make it very clear. Sarcastic joking and belittling of your spouse when you're with the guys or with the gals is not helping at all. It only hurts. So aim for restoration. Aim to see this become healthy, beautiful, flourishing. And do it with a spirit of gentleness. This is, this is what we must do. All right, verse two. He says, carry one another's burdens. and this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Huh. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Like he he kind of likes to say that, doesn't he? Like This is what it looks like to fulfill the law of love, or the law of Christ. You carry one another's burdens. Oh, what a beautiful thing this is. And, and uh, this sermon is gonna be full of shameless plugs. Home groups. If you only are part of Love Church on a Sunday, you are missing what it is to be the church. You have to be in regular gospel community as the church. The one another's, like carry one another's burdens, encourage one another, rebuke one another, teach one another, admonish one another, all these one another's, there are tons of them throughout scripture. You cannot do those well here on a Sunday. There's only a limited number of them that you can do here on a Sunday. But when you get into somebody's home and you're eating a meal and you're watching how they interact with their family, and you're seeing the things that they're facing in their life and all that stuff, that's where you can do this beautifully. You carry one another's burdens because what this means is to carry another's burden. That means if, if someone's standing here and they've got a burden on them, for me to carry that for them or with them, what do I have to do? Back to where we started, I can't come from looking down on them and I can't come from looking up at them. I have to come in alongside them. I have to come, if I'm going to carry that with them, I have to actually feel what they feel, see how they see, experience that with them. So again, we come in horizontally. This is how we relate to each other. We can carry each other's burdens. This is the law of Christ. This is the law of love. This is what it looks like to genuinely love each other, is to come alongside each other, not from over or under, but together, side by side. 
And this means we do this in Christian community, in the church, we do this beautifully, but then we expand that out because our mission is not to just like, hey, create this insulated bubble. We're like, oh, we're holy. We huddle up here. This is great. No, he's always like, no, push out. Like Jesus, the only sinless one who came in and got really messy. And his holiness was contagious. And now he's calling us, go be salt and light in the world. Light drives out darkness. It permeates, it penetrates the darkness. We're supposed to go out. And so we take this law of love that we know we're only here because of grace. And so I can now go out into the community and not look down on these sinful pagans and not look up at these incredibly successful pagans or anything like that, but I can come in horizontally and say, I, I don't know who started it, but someone said once that sharing the gospel should be like one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. I know, I know where the source is. Like, hey, you're thirsty? Oh, Jesus, he actually made this, this well of water overflowing out of my heart that's never gonna run dry. That's in me. That actually goes back to Ezekiel and some prophecy there, and they, they would do this in, the, in one of the feasts and festivals in Jerusalem where from Ezekiel's vision, one of the priests would pour out some water on the steps of the temple because in Ezekiel's vision, it ultimately would become this massive river and overflow and just flood everything. And Jesus stood up at that feast, that festival, and he said, hey, this, this is the real deal. It's gonna come out of you. And so now we get to go take that to the world. Like, what an incredible privilege that is, that you get to go share this hope with the world. And we've got to go. Like, you need to see the urgency of this mission, that there are people all around, there's thousands of cyclists riding all around right now. We can get frustrated with that, or we can see every single one of them as someone like, man, they desperately need to know Jesus, just like I need to know Jesus. And I get to share that. And so we need to go into dark places. We need to share this faithfully, I love uh, George McLeod, a Scottish pastor. He said it like this. He said, I simply argue that the cross be raised again at the center of the marketplace as well as on the steeple of the church. I'm recovering the claim that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves, on a town garbage heap, at a crossroad of politics so cosmopolitan that they had to write his title in Hebrew and in Latin and in Greek and at the kind of place where cynics talk smut, thieves curse, and soldiers gamble, because that is where he died, and that is what he died about. And that is where Christ's men ought to be, and what church people ought to be about. Because we don't look down at others. We don't look up at others. We see them as someone just like us, in desperate need of this gospel of grace. And so we can take it there. But we do that with the confidence of knowing our position is secured, but the humility to know I could just as easily fall into that. So I'll be guarded. I'll be careful. And the, the whole thing here, like the carry one another's burdens. Do you see that the beauty of the gospel is that so much of the burden that we live under is self-imposed and imposed by others that God has not imposed on us. God has given us his law to show us you can never do it. But then he stepped in, Jesus came to save sinners like us who could not bear the burden. Jesus came to lift the burden off of us and said things like, hey, take my yoke upon you. My burden is light. He bears the weight of it. He carries it. Whereas now, in the context of this letter, you have these people trying to add to the gospel. They're trying to add a burden to the people. As Paul's saying, no, we don't slip into that. So we keep going, verse three. 
says, for if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each person examine his own work and then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else. For each person will have to carry his own load. Like, what? <laughs> That's weird. You just said, carry one another's burdens. And now you're saying, each person's gonna carry their own load. Watch out. Don't get puffed up and proud. Judgment day is coming. That's something we don't like to talk about in our culture. This is the reality. It would not be loving for us to just avoid the reality that you will die. I will die. And when you die, you will face judgment. The day is coming when we will have to give an account for what we have done in this world, in this life. And what will be our plea on that day? I hope and pray to God that I faithfully remind you over and over again, your only defense is Christ. You throw yourself on the mercy of God, knowing that Jesus is our salvation. He is our righteousness. He has given it to us and he has taken our sin. It has been nailed to the cross. And so there is no more condemnation for us in Christ. There's none left. And so we still must remember that day is coming. And so he's saying, like, this should humble us to know that we'll stand before God and give an account. This should humble us. We have to see who we really are. He starts this verse with four, meaning like this is tied to what I've already said. So the command of verse two, to carry one another's burdens. Like, hey, again, here's the danger. You can be conceited, start to view people vertically or downwardly, like up and down. Don't do that. Look horizontally. Because you get conceited, there's this danger. Let me, let me break that pride for a moment. You're gonna stand before God. You want something to break your pride and give you some humility? Just think about that day. That I'm gonna stand before a holy God who created me and then I rebelled against him. And then in my rebellion, when I was his enemy, he still in love and grace came to save me, to purchase me back, to pay the price of my sin. What an incredible God. And so I can look forward to that day, but man, I should be humbled by that reality. I should not be puffed up. So then verse six, he says, let no one who has taught the word, or let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the teacher. Oh, this balances out verse five. This verse five, um, he, the, each one is going to carry his own load. Like we could slip back and say, like, oh, well, it's about me, the, the hyper-individualism that is so rampant in our culture. Like me, what I do. He's like, no, 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 don't forget. And like I can see this in the context of the whole. This is all about like the relational outflow of the gospel. It's like, so you, to relate rightly to others, need to remember you and who you are. Be humbled, remember the gospel. But now he brings it back into this relational context. And so, hey, hmm. Communal discipleship, the, the teacher, the student paradigm, that's the expectation in the church. The idea that every Timothy has a Paul. There's someone mentoring, there's someone discipling you, there's someone who is calling you forward in the faith, there's someone who is teaching you and you are learning. Every one of us is called to that. That there should be this, this dynamic of I am learning from others who are further in the faith and I'm teaching others who are not as far in the faith. So the teacher and the student, they come together and yet it's not this like, oh, I'm above you or below you. It's no, we come together. From both positions, there's this call to generosity. That the teacher is being incredibly generous and in providing life, feeding on the word 
spiritual nourishment. And the student is saying, hey, I, I want to honor that. And so you can look at this, and this absolutely applies like in our context, that I am paid by the church to labor in teaching, preaching, study, prayer. I do this. Paul actually says um, those who are good at leading, particularly those who labor in teaching and preaching or prayer in the word, they're worthy of double honor. Like it is good to pay me a salary, which sounds really weird for me to say. And for a long time, I was so uncomfortable and insecure that I couldn't say that. But it is good and right to do that. But it's not just about the pastor being paid because he preaches or teaches every week. This is in every relationship. That maybe you're not financially paying someone who's discipling you, but how can you honor them? How can you show that here, because this is a horizontal relationship, we're brothers and sisters. Thank you for investing in me. I want to honor you with something as well. So maybe that means some kind of compensation, like I'm going to help with whatever, just the, the opportunities are endless. But again, the point is, we're together. The teacher is giving, the student is giving. We're together in this. Uh, verse seven, he continues on. He says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap, because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Don't be deceived. That's kind of the theme of the letter. Oh, you foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Who has deceived you? Hey, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. This is a warning to and warning of false teachers. Don't slip into a false gospel. The true gospel calls us in horizontally. It's like, what you sow, you will reap. There's kind of two promises of that. What you sow, you will reap. On the one hand, there's a certainty of it. What you sow, you will reap. It is coming. So what you do is going to result in something coming back to you. What you sow, you will reap. There's a certainty to this. But then the other connotation of this, the other nuance of this, is that it's also about the product. What you sow is what you will reap. So it is certain that it is coming, but it's also certain that what you sow is what you reap. So if I sow apple seeds, what should I reap? Apple trees and apples. What are you sowing? So if we come in looking down at others in superiority or looking up at others in inferiority, this envy, provoking, then what is going to come out of that? Continued self-absorption. Whereas if we come in horizontally, and I just want to magnify Jesus. He's magnified my life. Like you wouldn't believe the things he's done for me. And I just want you to know that. And you can join into this glorious fellowship and worship. And what do you reap? <laughs> I get to know the greatest treasure more and more as I share him more and more. Like it's beautiful how this just grows. Like this farming metaphor. He continues it in verse nine. He says, let us, let us not get tired of doing good for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. It's like farming. You know, just plant something in the ground, throw some water on the soil, walk away, come back tomorrow, like, <clears throat> why did you do nothing? <laughs> That's how I farm, actually. <laughs> no, like anyone with the same mind knows like, it's gonna take some time. So you're gonna put some more water on it. The next day, Nothing water it. It takes time. So what you sow, you will reap. It's like, hey, don't give up. 
Maybe you need to hear that. Maybe there's something that you're investing in in your life. It's your child, it's your spouse, it's your coworker, whatever it is. I don't know what it is, but you know what it is. And maybe you just need to hear, it takes time. So don't give up, don't get tired. Keep doing the work. And watch, the harvest is coming. Harvest is coming. And he concludes this, this section, he says, verse 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Yeah, <laughs> that's a high calling. Like that can be a bit overwhelming. Therefore, so because of all of this, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. The good of who? The good of all. That's a really, really big task. The good of all. Let's work for the good of all. Beloved church, let's work for the good of all. Claremont, the nations. Let's work for the good of all. Every person you see, you count the cyclists today as you're going home. Let's work for the good of every one of them. Let's work for the good of all. That is honestly overwhelming. Um, but I want to point out a couple of things to help you with that. He says, as we have opportunity. So don't be overwhelmed by like, ah, oh, that's just too much. So I'll just shut down. No, you lean into the providence of God. God is really in control of absolutely everything. That doesn't mean he's responsible for the evil, but he's in control of every bit of it with uncontested omnipotence. He's in control. And so in his sovereign providence, as you have opportunity, you lean into that and see God has ordained this. So I'll step into this moment. Here's an opportunity. I'll step into it. I want to give you some opportunities. You looking for an opportunity? Right now, uh, they've been announced, some of them, uh, December 4th, there's a local um, children's ranch, the Integrity Youth Ranch, where we as a church are going to own the girls' house. And so there, I, if I'm not mistaken, there's 20 to 30 kids in there. And, and we get the privilege of bringing some just joy to go decorate that house and spend a couple hours with those girls. Why don't you go be there? These are kids who don't have a family. And we get to step in as the family of God and call them brother and sister. Can I tell you why I have hope in this season? Can I tell you that you do actually have a family? There's, there's a heavenly father who loves you. Like we get the privilege of doing that and it can be as simple as like, I'm just putting Christmas lights up, trying not to fall off a ladder, but I'm gonna have this conversation with you and tell you about the joy that I know or donate some things. If you can't be there, you can donate. The hands are on the wall over there on the door. Donate some things to help with this effort. That's an opportunity. Also, in this season, um, you, you can talk, um, Jessica Mangle is heading up that one with the, the girls' house. Um, you can also talk to Karen Vandermeer. Um, in this season, there are two opportunities with an organization that she works with regularly called Dorcas Way, and, and this, this is a, a warm clothing and blanket drive. So you have some extra jackets, you want to go buy some jackets, some blankets? You can contribute that. I know that it's actually going to be used by people who are in need in our very own community. How cool is that? Or they're also doing an unwrapped toy drive so that children who will wake up on Christmas morning and may not have much to see, they'll have something. And they can know that, wow, there are people in this world that love me like that. They just want to bring joy in the simple act of like, I have something exciting to open and play with. And so there's opportunity after opportunity. So lean into the opportunities. Don't be overwhelmed by the call to do good to all, but lean into the providence of God. Where are the opportunities at? And then press into them. 
And then also see, he concludes that with saying, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. So this is, this is not us being selfish, but this is, this is the beauty of being family. That our primary focus is here, with each other. That we should be obsessively looking out for each other. How can I help you? What can I do to encourage you? What can I do to help? How can I carry this burden with you? And so focus on the household of God and then lean into the opportunities as they come about. So here's the bottom line. If the gospel changes me, if the gospel changes me, it changes my relationships too. It doesn't end on me. If the gospel changes me, it changes my relationships too. But let's go back to the beginning, the dance of couples. That we get into these patterns of, of frustration and, and all the tension, the strife, the brokenness, the conflict, and we're, and we're doing this dance where that part of my brain that, that's not even the thinking part, it just overwhelms the thinking part and suddenly I'm not thinking, I'm just responding, I'm just reacting in emotion and we just get into this cycle. And it's crazy. And how do we get out of this cycle? How do I actually follow the law of love? How do I change the dance? Getting my relationships, my interactions to be aligned with the gospel is the real question. And this is what um, therapist Daniel Siegel says. He says, the brain is an anticipation machine that shapes ongoing perception by what it automatically expects based on prior experience. It's a little technical. Hear that again. The brain is an anticipation machine that shapes ongoing perception by what it automatically expects based on prior experiences. The whole idea of the past is the past, that's nonsense. The past is not the past. The past is still informing today. That's just true. That's how our brain works. You are making sense of every moment in light of every moment that came before it. All of your experiences are shaping the way that you see all of today. And so much of that happens in that middle brain where it's, it's emotional. Like I'm not logically thinking this through and yet it floods up and takes over my thinking brain. And now I'm just reacting in this way that's not logical. But I'm just, I'm here. And I feel all this stuff. That's called your implicit memory. The implicit memory of all these things that have shaped me and I've experienced are informing today. And that's terrifying. And if you just give that some thought for, like, go for a walk with a cup of coffee or whatever and think that through, you're like, yeah, <laughs> that's really true. And that can feel overwhelming and defeating. And so you realize, like, the beauty in that is that if I remember why I'm part of this family, if I remember the gospel, this good news that I'm a sinner, and I don't deserve God's love. But he loves me this much that he would die for me, for me? This is insane. This is glorious. He is glorious. He's the greatest treasure ever. I could never earn this, and yet I'm here with confidence, and I'm humbled by this because I could fall into that again. But he loves me, and he's keeping me. This is why I'm here. I'm gonna hold on to him because he's holding on to me. Nothing can touch me. Hey, I don't have to look down at you. I don't have to look up at you. I can see you as my brother, my sister. I can love you because I'm loved, because I belong, and I'm known, and I'm still loved by God. I can do that to you. I can offer you this freedom. I'm free. So will you step into this freedom? When I remember that, when I meditate on that, when it's just constantly in my mind, it sinks into that implicit memory, and now that starts to shape everything. 
then now I'm not responding out of, oh, this hurt and that hurt. No, everything becomes out of this just overwhelming pool of, man, the gospel. He loves me. So I'm free to respond. We don't have to dance this dance. I, I can do things like Jesus said, like let you hit the other cheek after you hit this cheek. And you can ask for my cloak and like have my cloak, but here, have my tunic as well. You want to go one mile? I'm going to go two. And that's okay. Because I'm loved. And so I don't have to fall into this vicious cycle. So meditate on the gospel. Don't let anything distort the gospel. You are free. Your freedom is in Christ. For freedom, Christ set us free. Let's pray. God, I thank you. This, this is your story and not ours because we would have written it so differently. You are the author of all life. Um, you're the, the creator, you're the sustainer, and everything finds its being in you. So I thank you that even when it seems like you are far off and we can try to, to pursue you and all that, we can know that you're actually near. So help us, God, to faithfully meditate on your gospel, to hide your word in our hearts, to remember who we are in light of who you say that we are, not what we have done or could do, but what you have done, what you've proven in the past. You have historically done this for us and help that to be the thing that we meditate on constantly and that informs the way that our brains think and respond to every situation. That help us to be a loving people because you have loved us and called us your beloved. God, I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.